Easter is two weeks away. Easter's two weeks away, and if there's um, ever been a, a, an Easter in recent history where we so needed an open display of God's power and his goodness and a reminder that in Easter, in the truth of the resurrection, all things are made right. And all things are being made right. It's this year. So I ask you to be praying for Easter. Be praying for yourself, for your family. Uh, be praying for us as a church. Be fra- praying uh, for friends, co-workers, neighbors, classmates who don't know Jesus. Uh, and this may be one of the two or three times a year that they go to church. Be living invitationally the next couple of weeks. There are a lot of unknowns this year at Easter, but we have a few of the same knowns. We know that this is a day in the life of the church where God seems to show up year after year, century after century in a significant way. So that's our prayer, that regardless of of how the services go, regardless of what numbers look like and who's in person and who's online, that it will be a time of significant spiritual impact to the glory of God and the good of his people and his word uh, and his world. Let me pray for us. I just want to pray for Easter quickly, and then we're going to jump in to 1 Kings chapter 19. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. God, that, that you not only took our sin on the cross, Lord Jesus, that you paid our debt, but God, in the resurrection we find your affirming, powerful voice that it was indeed enough. And I pray that this year, God, when so many have experienced such significant trial and struggle and anxiety and depression and loss over the last 12 months, God, that you would visit us in a special way. Lord, that your power and presence would be evident this Easter. God, that lives would be saved, that men and women would be changed by the power of the gospel and to your glory. I ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, um, 1 Kings chapter 19, we look, at, uh, we look at a period, a moment in the life of the prophet Elijah. And if you're familiar with this story, verse 18 chronicles a, a big kind of battle between Elijah and his God, Yahweh, the one true God, and the false God, Baal, and Baal's prophets. And Elijah wins out. It was, in a sense, the, the Super Bowl of spiritual showdowns. It was the Super Bowl of spiritual showdowns. And Elijah, he wins over the weak king Ahab and over the wicked wife of King Ahab, Jezebel, and over the pathetic prophets of Baal. It was a huge moment. It was a high point, probably the high point in Elijah's life. And I assume he thinks he's going to come out of there and they're going to put a a, a star on the walk of faith of fame for him, right? He's going to come back to uh, greetings and adulation. They're going to start a reality show that stars him. But that's not how it goes for Elijah. And I think often that's not how it goes for us. Let's look at chapter 19. We'll read verses 1 through 4, beginning. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, 
May the gods deal with me. May the gods, it's funny because he had just shown up her supposed gods. Yet she's still holding on to that. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Very specific, isn't it? Anyone been on the receiving end of an angry woman? <laughs> you guys are too scared to even laugh. I thought that would be funny. No, um, Jezebel's very specific. She, she says, may, may I be like one of them, and may the gods deal with me if by this specific time tomorrow, I don't make you as dead as my prophets are. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid. This man who just spent all of chapter 18 confronting anyone and everyone that stood up against him and God. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. I've had enough. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Take my life, Lord. I've had it. He's depressed. He's angry with God. Life has taken a sudden turn in a direction. He was not expecting things weren't working like he thought they would. Have you ever walked through a season like this? You ever been through a time where you just have no idea what's happening? Why God is working like he is or if he's working at all. Whatever's happening, it's not what you thought it would be. And maybe it came just on the other side of you faithfully trying to pursue and follow Jesus with all that you were and all that you knew. Some of you are familiar enough with the great 19th century British preacher Spurgeon to know that he wrestled with depression all of his life. Um, probably the most gifted, certainly the most gifted English-speaking uh, preacher of the last thousand years. But he battled with depression. When he was 22 years old, his ministry was kind of going uh, from favor to favor. He'd been pastoring and preaching just a little while, and the church was growing, and it was growing, and they outgrew their venue, and had to get another venue, and they outgrew that venue, had to get another one, and outgrew it, and finally... Um, they rented the largest venue in London at that time, the Surrey Garden Music Hall. Surrey Garden Music Hall. No place in London could hold more people. And at their very first service in Surrey Garden, October 19th, 1856, Spurgeon was getting ready to preach, and he just had begun preaching. And some people had sat down kind of in the middle of one of the lower tiers. They had balconies and, and upper areas where people were surrounding uh, this great preacher who would preach to thousands and thousands with no microphone. And someone, joking around, yelled, Fire! Fire! The, the place is giving way. And commotion and panic set in, right? They couldn't push a panic button and get first responders headed there. They didn't have cell phones to, to jerk out and call 911. They had no alarm systems and fire systems and sprinkler systems. When a fire started, it started and it usually went fast. Panic ensued and people began to push their way out. Spurgeon kept preaching. He tried to calm people down, but he couldn't. And in the panic, seven people were killed. Literally just trampled to death by people trying to get out in panic. Another 28 were severely wounded. 
Depression set in after that in Spurgeon's life and never left him. Never left him. He would have seasons of a bit of relief, but it was never far from him. His wife would go on to say that his mind never seemed to be the same after that incident that day. We've had these moments where just out of nowhere life changes, and this is where Elijah is. He doesn't understand what's going on. He's so low, he wants to die. He's so depressed that he's suicidal. He has no hope that the future will get any better. Not only is he suicidal, he's asking God to take his life. That's a whole nother level of prayer, isn't it? I've asked God for a lot of things across the years. I've never asked him for that one. But this is where he is. Remember another prophet that got so low he asked God to take his life? Jonah. Yeah, we just came out of a series with Jonah. So this is where Elijah is. He's at the bottom of the bottom. Let's look at verses 5 through 10. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Sliding a bit into self-pity, maybe? Certainly Elijah's existence at this time is characterized by depression. Tim Keller notes that God's doing three things in this little interaction here with Elijah that I want to share with you briefly, this initial interaction. First, God sends an angel of rest. God sends an angel of rest directly to Elijah. I don't want your angel theology to be bad to the degree that you have one. Angels aren't just hanging around. Uh, sometimes people will talk like that, I think I saw an angel. Well, they're not just sort of floating about. Throughout Scripture, angels come and go on mission. They have an assignment. They're deployed, in a sense, to take care of something. God deploys an angel to be a messenger of rest here. Sometimes, honestly, the most spiritual thing you could do would be take a nap. The most spiritual thing you could do would be recognize that the world doesn't depend on you. And you can go to bed a little bit earlier. Or you could sleep a little bit later. Because everything in society will just keep moving. You know this. You're not going to pass away. They're going to mourn just a little while and then put somebody else at our desk and life just keeps moving. Sometimes you just need a nap. Second, God listens. God listens. He asks Elijah, what are you doing here? And you and I know that God doesn't ask because he doesn't know. God never asks a question out of ignorance. Kids, 
Your parents rarely ask a question out of ignorance. They almost always already know. So stop lying. Right? God asks questions when he's getting ready to move, when he wants to teach us something, when we need to find help in answering the question. He listens. What are you doing here? If you remember, there's no one else there to listen to Elijah because in verse 3, he left his traveling companion behind. One of the things that depression does, one of the ways that it lies to you is it says, you just need to be alone. The only way you're going to be safe is to be alone. And that's just absolutely not true. It's the worst thing you can do when you're walking through depression is to leave everyone else behind, to push people out of your life. But that is often what we do. Third, God gives him his word. The word of God comes to him in verse 9 I'll say more about the word of God in just a minute but he begins speaking to Elijah and Keller notes here that you see uh, you see physical care psychological care and spiritual care given here and I think that's significant we talked about last week how you and I are a psychosomatic unity we're a whole being you can't in a sense really separate these aspects out mind body and spirit are united you don't have a soul you are a soul and often if you are in a severe battle with depression or anxiety you're going to need help in all three areas because we tend to we tend to go one direction or another some people will run the medication and medication only now if you were here last week and the week before you know i'm not opposed to medication our brain is an organ and it can get unhealthy just like other organs can Sometimes there's chemistry and there's biology involved. We can also run to the other side where we're so spiritual, we just say this is a faith issue. This is an issue of prayer. This is an issue of being uh, in Scripture enough. You don't need this other stuff. The problem's over here. The reality of of it is it's usually a mixture. And given your temperament, your background, you tend to underestimate one or the other. You underestimate maybe the psychological reality of how much you need to be in community, how much you need someone, how much you might need counseling, how much you might need a deep gospel-centered friend that can listen to you in love and with compassion, but listen theologically. Listen in ways that provide you both comfort and challenge. But if you look at what God does here, he he ministers to Elijah physically by caring for his needs through this angel. He eats, he drinks, he sleeps. When you're going through depression, all of these things are turned upside down. You may eat all the time or you may not eat at all. Your sleep gets really messed up. The very first thing that God does is care for Elijah's physical needs. But he ministers to him psychologically as he listens to him. He lets Elijah talk it out. Emotions are very, very real. Emotions are not the problem, right? Emotions are, are, are like, it's like a fire alarm. There's something behind it when our emotions are overflowing. You and I need people to talk to. We need people to spend time with. You know what a ministry it is just to listen? You know how many people in our day are so desperate to be heard? I got behind a lady the other day in Publix that didn't have many people to talk to. And she found me. And, and this is a struggle for me spiritually, guys. It is. like when I, I'm on mission when I'm out in public. 
Like, I've got a task to do. Sharon has assigned me errands to do within a certain time. But she found me, and she found the little girl behind the register who had no idea what she'd gotten into. And she found everyone else between there and her car. But I remember thinking, there are so many people who are just simply desperate to be heard. They're desperate to to have someone that they believe cares enough to listen. Get a friend. Find at least one. Journal. Great men and women of God throughout history have kept immense amounts of journals. Get what's inside you out. Find a good Christian counselor. He also ministers to him spiritually by giving him his word. Let's look back at verse 11. We'll read 11 through 14. The Lord said again to Elijah, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Remember, he's in a cave on Mount Horeb. By the way, uh, do, do any of you know the other name that Mount Horeb goes by? Yeah, Mount Sinai. Anybody else remember someone who, who went up on Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai? Moses. And was told to, to, to stand there. God's going to pass by. I'll have more to say about this in just a minute. Rest of verse 11. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then the voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah repeats himself. I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me. So Elijah hasn't changed his tune any. Here's what's interesting. Elijah's in the cave, and the wind comes. And this is, think, when you think wind, think more like tornado, because it's ripping this mountain apart. The wind comes, God isn't in the wind. The earthquake comes, God's not in the earthquake. The fire comes, God's not in the fire. Now, in Moses' day, in Moses' day, God was in the fire. God was in the wind. God was in the earthquake. Same thing happens to Elijah on the same mountain, but God's not in those things. So what's going on here? What's going on here? Here's the point. Here's the point. God's voice in our lives does not always come like we expect it to come. God's voice in your life does not always come like you expect it to come. Elijah knew their history. He knew what it meant to ascend this mountain. He knew what it meant to hear from God. And he knew what it meant when wind came and earthquakes came and fire came. Yet God was not in them. The fact that God's voice in our lives doesn't always come like we expect it to come does not mean that God is not speaking. 
It does not mean that God is not speaking. Just because God is not working like you expect Him to work does not mean that He's not at work and that He's not at work for your good and for His glory. There's mystery here. You and I are not God. We don't know what God knows. But we do know this for sure. If we could see as God sees, we'd answer as He answers when it comes to prayer. But God sees much wider and much deeper than we do. And in verses 15 through 18, we won't read those right now, but you, you look down there, you see that God is at work. He's raising up a, a pagan king, Hazael, to deal with Ahab and Jezebel. He's got 7,000 in Israel he's reserved for himself who have not bowed down in worship to pagan gods. He's getting ready to raise up new prophets. He's always working. Evelyn Underhill said this, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. If God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. That's a mouthful in one sentence. Do you really want a God so tiny that his brain isn't any larger than yours? For some of you, that'd be absolutely dangerous. I'm just joking. God is not let, listen, listen, I don't want you to miss this. God has not let Elijah down. Elijah's incorrect view of God and how God works has let Elijah down. God's, uh, Elijah's narrow view, his limited view of God and of how God works is what has let Elijah down. Not God himself. Now, let me just share with you a few things that you and I must do in times of depression if we're going to walk through them now this is regardless of of what aspects of depression you're dealing with right if it's just spiritual it's a spiritual and psychological if it's spiritual psychological physical biological three things and we see them here one you have to trust in the wisdom and goodness of god you have to trust in the wisdom and goodness of God when you're walking through depression because depression distorts everything. Depression distorts everything and you cannot trust your feelings. Have you, have you yet lived long enough to look back on an area, a period of your life where you had no idea why things were happening like they were but you look back now and understand? If you haven't, you'll get there and you'll see the goodness and the providence and the care of God in your life through that time. So can you not imagine with the focus of eternity how your entire life might make sense? And the goodness and wisdom of God at work? Let's go back and look at verse 11. I, I, I want to point out something I don't want us to miss here. Verse 11, the Lord, uh, the, the Lord says to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain. But Elijah doesn't go out until verse 13. He doesn't go out until verse 13. God, in a sense, keeps Elijah in the mountain so that the mountain can absorb the wrath of the wind and the earthquake and the fire. And Elijah can come out and experience the gentle voice of God. If the wind was ripping the mountain up, what do you think it would have done to Elijah? It would have torn Elijah to pieces. There's a reason God gives him instruction in 11, but he holds him in the cave until verse 13. Fire, earthquake, and wind are all pictures of God's judgment throughout 
the Old Testament. And Elijah was hidden in the cave of the mountain so that he was not harmed. The mountain absorbs these powerful manifestations of the judgment of God so that Elijah might receive the grace of God. You have no idea when you're walking through depression what God may be protecting you from in that, in that season. Choosing to trust his goodness, choosing to trust his wisdom is an act of grace-fueled, prayer-filled choice. And that's why you need friends around you reminding you. If you know Elijah's story, you know that Elijah never dies. Right? Not a bad deal. Rides a chariot of fire off to glory. Like, that's the way I want to go out. Lord hasn't asked, and he probably won't. But if I got to choose, maybe, maybe a dirt bike of fire. Um, but something, something good. But he shows up again, if you remember. Remember this? Elijah shows up again right before Jesus dies. And he stands with Jesus on a mountain in all his glory. And somebody else is there with him, you remember? Moses is there. These two men who descended Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, had been there personally in the presence of God and experienced the power of God, but had to be cared for. They're with Jesus again, Matthew 17, Mark 9. Luke 9, the Mount of Transfiguration. God had hidden, you remember, he'd hidden Moses too. He said, I'm going to come, but he said, nobody can look at my face. My goodness is going to pass by you. The fullness of, of my presence and glory is going to pass by you. But it will kill you if you look directly on it. So he hides him in the cleft of a rock on the mountain. This kind of break or indention. Now what we have here is Moses and Elijah in Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9 standing on the mountain with Jesus in the full presence and person of God himself and it's not hurting them. In fact, it seems like they're taking on a measure of the glory and the presence of God themselves. They're seeing for the first time what Mount Sinai, what Mount Horeb was pointing to was pointing to Jesus. They were pointing to Jesus, the cornerstone who would fully absorb the wrath and the judgment of God on the cross so that you and I might receive the gentle grace of God's redeeming voice. This is what's going on here. What they knew in part, we know in full. What they saw in shadow, we see in substance Jesus took the wind he took the fire he took the earthquake of God's judgment so that you and I might know by faith in Jesus Christ the peace of God's acceptance and if you're familiar with acts we see these these three manifestations of the power of God again in just the first four chapters of acts the Holy Spirit comes if you remember like a mighty wind but it doesn't destroy us it fills us with power the Holy Spirit comes to rest on believers like tongues of fire. But it doesn't destroy us. It infuses us with resurrection power. Acts 4, there's an earthquake. But it doesn't destroy us. It gives us power to proclaim the name of Jesus boldly. All of a sudden, the veil has been torn. And in Jesus, we are brought into and held in the presence of God. 
believer, you have nothing to fear from the fullness of the presence of God. You think he doesn't know who you are? You think he doesn't know what you've done and what you've said? You think it's really about you? You think the cross wasn't powerful enough to overcome whatever shortcomings you have in your life? Can I just say in all love, in that sense, you make too much of yourself. God's grace covers it all. Jesus is the rock who takes God's judgment, the cornerstone who absorbs God's wrath so that we might be redeemed and filled with resurrection power. So when things don't go like I think they should, the cross means I don't have to doubt God's goodness for me. When things don't go like you think they should, like you've hoped for, like you dreamed for, like you prayed for, the cross means you don't have to doubt God's goodness for you. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that if God's not going to spare his own son but to gladly and freely give him as an atoning sacrifice for us, what other good thing is he going to withhold? What other good thing will he withhold? John Owen said that the greatest insult you can give God after the cross is to doubt his goodness. The greatest insult you can give God after the cross is to doubt his goodness. Second thing you've got to do, you have got to confront the lies. Depression breeds lies in our lives. Elijah, he's just wallowing around in self-pity like a baby in a warm, dirty diaper. Doesn't bother them. It's warm and it's theirs. Right? He's down here having this massive, massive pity party. And he allows a few truths to lead him to a lie. And you and I often do this. Look back at verse 10. He repeats it in 14, but let's go up where he says it first. God says, hey, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, funny you should ask, because I've got some things to share with you. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Is that true? That's true. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. Was that true? That was true. They've torn down your altars. True. They put your prophets to death with the sword. True. I am the only one left. False. False. Depression tends to lead us out into places where our view of reality is so warped we can't get out of it ourselves. He's not the only one left. In fact, before the end of this chapter, he's going to be anointing Elisha, who will forever cause us trouble, between Elijah and Elisha and who did what and where. He'll be anointing Elisha, his successor. 800 years from now, God will send another prophet, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the one to whom everything the Old Testament was pointing to and everything since has been pointing back at. He's not the only one. You've got to learn to defy the voice of depression. Doesn't mean you don't acknowledge that you are in a season of depression. That's really important. But it means that you also acknowledge that the voice of depression lies to you about what is true. Third and last one. You've got to get back on mission. Not only do we have to trust in the wisdom and the goodness of God, not only do we have to confront the lies that, that bubble up in seasons of depression, but we have to get back on mission. If you're still breathing, God is not done with you yet. If you're still breathing, it doesn't matter if you're confined to a wheelchair, if you're homebound, if you've got this going or that go going, if your bank account's huge or they closed it for you. 
God's not done with you if you're still breathing. You, as a follower of Jesus, have been commissioned and are on mission. You may be cluelessly bumbling about mission, but you're on mission. Look at verse 15. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Now we could go on because he gives him task after task after task. He cares for him physically. He cares for him psychologically. He cares for him spiritually. He calls him to trust in his goodness and in his wisdom. He teaches him to confront the lies. And then he calls him to get back out on mission. To get back out on mission. The worst thing you can do when you're in the throes of depression is just wallow around on the couch watching Hulu, Netflix, Prime, YouTube TV, whatever it is. But honestly, that's all you want to do, isn't it? You ever been there? That's all you want to do. Stay in your bedroom, so hard to get up in the morning. You think I'll just sleep it off? God says, no, get back on mission. Remember, there are people out here that I want to touch through you. Get moving. You know, I said earlier that Spurgeon never got over his depression. Gratefully, for church and for the history of church, Spurgeon, even though a Victorian British preacher, man, was very, very open to both speak and write about his depression, almost unheard of in his day, almost unheard of in our day. And in time, he chose to see it as a word from God pointing towards something better that was coming. He knew that you could be a faithful person of God and battle depression. And as his life unfolded, he knew that you could be a person of God faithful and battle depression all of your life but in the end friends let's just say even if even if in this life you can you never get past it it still will end one day and you will stand whole in the presence of your savior glorified with the same glory that he has depression never gets the last word as the band makes their way out here and prepares to um, lead us in a time of reflection and response, I, just, I encourage you to, to think about where you are and to give your heart and your mind to God and to ask God to cry out to Him, Daddy, as people throughout Scripture have, say, I need you to minister to me. How, how strange is that in our thinking? Yet that's what Jesus said he came to do. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He said, the greatest among you will be the least. The servant's not greater than the master. Say, God, I need you to minister to me right now. To minister to me physically. To minister to me psychologically. To minister to me spiritually. In a message, a sermon, Spurgeon said this. He said, I find myself frequently depressed perhaps more so than anyone else in this room of 10,000 people. I, the pastor, the man of God. And yet I find no better cure for that depression than to trust in the Lord with all my heart 
and seek to realize afresh the power of the peace-speaking blood of Jesus. What was he doing there, church? He was preaching to himself. Spurgeon was preaching truth to his own heart and his own mind as he battled the depths and the desperation of depression. Stop listening to your depressed voice and start preaching to your depressed voice because truth always wins out. And Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He is unshakable. He is unmovable. And if you're a follower of his, you're in him. You belong to him. You're held by him. And nothing can tear you from his grip. Let's stand and pray.